Daniel Gilad is a sound engineer and music producer that has been working in the industry for over a decade. Music for me is about creating relationships through sound. Each piece of music has its own personality, quality, and design. It is a reflection of the artist's soul and a small window to their story. Daniel has provided services for live sound, studio production, mixing, and mastering to some of Hawaii's finest artists. It is my job to be able to translate it and shape it to be shared with the world. Traveling the globe has exposed Daniel to a variety of music, cultures, and relationships. He brings this breadth of perspectives and experiences to his craft and has worked in many different genres, including folk, rock, hip hop, world, pop, sound healing, and meditation. Contact Daniel at dgsoundcreations.com to learn more about how he can help you with your next creative project. dgsoundcreations.com for all of your audio production needs. I am pleased and honored to provide post-production services to What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. We are well into season two and super happy to be on the air bringing you another series of interviews this winter spring of 2021. The gods willing, at least here in Hawaii, the light at the end of the COVID tunnel is getting brighter, which makes it a unique moment to talk about education. This series, now halfway through its second season, has garnered well over 21,000 downloads. We thank you, listeners. We will continue to bring you the stories of agile, adaptive, and innovative public, public charter, and private school educators and education leaders until we have achieved a thousand points of light. We are many va'a, one voyage, all in it for all kids on all islands. Today, my guest is Robert Pennybacker, the Vice President of Learning Initiatives at PBS Hawaii and the driving force behind Hikino, one of the most unique, student-driven, and authentic learning programs on planet Earth. This is no joke, listeners. I am not engaging in hyperbole. There are lots of student news programs around the nation, but none with the mission and vision nor the scope and reach of Hikino. This program's impact on kids is simply staggering. And today we are gonna hear how it was built and what drove Robert to move it forward. Robert Pennybacker's resume is long and deep. Early on, he was a local television marketing director. A few decades back, he formed Pennybacker Creative Inc., wherein he conceptualized, wrote, produced, and directed commercials and other marketing creative for notable businesses and nonprofits in the islands. Robert is an independent filmmaker who has written more than 20 documentaries about life and people in Hawaii. He is also a poet and a writer. In 2007, he became the vice president of creative services at PBS Hawaii and oversaw all local programming, on-air promotion, interstitial production, station branding, and the production of on-air fundraising for the station, as well as management of personnel. 
Oh yes, during this time, he helped launch Hikino, the nation's first statewide student news network. Robert and I go back pretty far. We played high school football together back in the 70s at Punahou School. He was a tight end, I played center, which makes this moment very special for me. And now, here's my conversation with Robert Pennybacker. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Robert, I want to start by looking down from the 10,000-foot level, if you will, on the life and times so far of Robert Pennybacker. Um, Okay. So, you've been a poet, a documentary writer, a filmmaker, a producer, a project manager, a creative. Um, In other words, you have made many things with your hands and your mind and your heart. Many, many things. Yeah. I know it's hard... not, not so much my hands. I'm, I'm not. I'm not too good with my hands. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you're you're managing buttons and things like that. So there's some manipulation right. with your hands. But um, right. so I know I know it's hard to select a favorite. But looking down on you, describe one or two things you were most proud of in your life. Um, the couple things that you would want mentioned, for example, inside a book jacket, in the biography written about you. Um, yeah, a couple things come to mind. It, it is interesting because I haven't really thought of this, but, um, I was the, um, not the only producer, but the, I would say the finishing producer, writer, director of a documentary called A Living You're Dying, which was about, uh, end of life issues. And, uh, the main character was, was a real person, uh, Dr. Mitsuo Oki was really a pioneer uh, in, in the hospice movement and, um, and end-of-life treatment uh, movement in Hawaii. He, he's since passed away. And um, that stands out because uh, uh, I, th- I think I was really needed to finish the project. It par- apparently had been in production for 10 years <laughs> uh, before I came on board. And I kind of joke, but I think I was the last person, last producer in Hawaii to have worked on it, mm. uh, but it um, but it was a very meaningful film for me, and I think it's had a lot of impact on, on a lot of people. Uh, the other thing in my career that's uh, almost the polar opposite was I was the um, marketing director in charge of when KHON, where I was working at the time, switched network affiliations from NBC uh, to Fox. Mm. Uh, which doesn't sound like a big deal now, but but back then, this was in um, 1996, uh, it was a big deal. It hadn't happened much at all in the country. And um, uh, I think it stands out to me because um, the rest of the station really thought that this was going to be the, the end of KHON's dominance, that it was going to be uh, like uh, like the Titanic. We were going to sink sink down to the bottom of the ocean mm-hmm. and almost the opposite happened. So, um, I guess those two things stand out because, um, they had an impact on mm. a lot of people. What, what work did you do at KHON during that switch that helped ensure that KHON would continue forward and, and not sink like the Titanic? 
Uh, I was uh, the promotions director or the marketing director. So, so my job uh, with a very small department, myself and, and three other employees, was basically to um, uh, increase the ratings as much as possible. That, that's the job of that, that, that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, through marketing, through advertising, through promotion, through spreading the word, what, you know, whatever you can do. <laughs> mm-hmm. And was there a moment, Robert, along, the, along that pathway where you started to realize that your team's efforts was kind of changing the mindset of everybody else at KHON? Like, they, okay, the ship's not going down. We're actually going to keep moving forward? No, that was the interesting thing. It, it, it didn't change the mindset until until the Nielsen book came out. So mm. it was really one of those situations where uh, everyone, everyone was disbelievers until, uh, until the, the proof came out, you know? Right. And, uh, and the numbers don't, well, I don't know if the numbers don't lie, but the, but the numbers um, get printed <laughs> and are, uh, uh, are, you know, followed. Mm. And um, uh, one of, the, uh, one of the, the most vocal non-believers was, was uh, Joe Moore, the anchor. Right. And I remember um, I had the pleasure of, uh, I won't say throwing, but putting that <laughs> Nielsen book on his desk and saying, hey, Joe, check these numbers out. They, they actually turn out pretty good. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. Uh, but so it was one, of, I guess, a combination. I don't know why that, that, that stands out, but mm-hmm. yeah, maybe a combination of, of just being, uh, and I didn't have a choice, you know, be, being a believer amidst a sea of non-believers and then, mm-hmm. and then um proving them wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. So Robert, you you graduated from Punahou in 1974, two years ahead of me, um, which means you had some of the same teachers I did and likely took some of the same classes. So describe for our listeners the bridge between your experiences at Punahou and your decision to enter the University of Southern California's Cinema Production School, from which you graduated uh, magna cum laude. Um, you know, I had a lot of good teachers at Punahou. I think that was one of the benefits of that school, but um, but none really uh, was was mentoring me in terms of being a filmmaker. There, there really wasn't a filmmaking class. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> there, there was a uh, a course called Novel to Film where we. Uh, we would watch movies and then read the novels that the movies were based on and, and analyze them. That, that, and that, that was, my teacher was uh, Dr. Schliemann, mm-hmm. um, terrific teacher. But my, my inspiration was more, um, you know, making movies with my friends um, and just really, um, I had I, always been into movies. Uh, I, I was a child of television. Uh, the TV was my babysitter as, as the case for many in my generation mm-hmm. um but it, i got serious about movies when um you know i have to say one one of the key um inspirations was um my mom my mom i don't know if she was a movie buff but she would um she would buy me books about filmmakers mm-hmm. which was kind of, which was kind of interesting and and a lot of the cases you, you know back then <clears throat> there was no netflix there were there weren't even DVDs or VHS, you, it was hard to see movies, hard to see uh, rare movies. You might catch them uh, on late night TV 
or uh, the Film Society at uh, at UH Manoa. I have to really credit them. Yeah, right. Uh, so, uh, so I think it was a combination of that. My, I had a group of friends that we were we were into it, and we made Super Eight movies. And and my mom, and the films I got to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I will say Punahou. Um, you know, the the teachers who influenced me were were more about. Um, you know, the English teachers and philosophy. So it's kind of, you know, uh, getting my mind ready for that kind of, that kind of activity, mm-hmm. creativity, mm-hmm. As, but as not, it, spe- not specifically film. Mm. But that, you mean sort of preparing you as a storyteller, but not specifically film yet. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's super interesting, Robert, because I also took the same course novel and film. I can't remember exactly what it was called. Um, but I had the other teacher, Paul Barry, Paul Doc Barry. Oh and, yeah, I remember yeah, him. Yeah, and he, I, I've actually talked about that experience um, with other guests on this podcast. That that was a transformative experience for me. Um, that I had the opportunity to make my first film in that class using a Super 8 camera, and I, I, I turned a James Thurber fable, The Unicorn in the Garden, into a live action film. Um, and with Doc's guidance. And then that was the first real project-based learning before we ever started talking about it in those terms, um, mm-hmm. experience that I had. Um, so that's that's like interesting. And so w- when you decided to go to USC film school, that, that was a very deliberate decision on your part? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I applied to the other known film schools, um, NYU, um, Columbia, even though they weren't really known for film, they had they had a film program. Mm-hmm. Uh, Columbia University of New York, um, and um, and UC Boulder, which had um, more of a media, a mm-hmm. well known media program, not not just specifically film, right? Uh, and the and USC, right, yeah. right. And so, you know, what was your experience like at USC Film School? Like, what, yeah, what was it like? Uh, it was. It was great. It was really interesting. It was uh, um, uh, sort of a lot of ups and downs. You know, there were a lot of pluses and a, and a lot of minuses. Um, I think the, the main plus was uh, it was a great school, I have to say. You know, if, if you wanted to, to live, live, eat, and breathe film, that was mm-hmm. the place to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think, um, I think one of the benefits was being, being with peers. And, you know, if... Uh, you know, if you if you applied to film school, you, you, it wasn't a normal thing to do. So it wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm I'm going to be pre med because, you know, my dad's a doctor or you know, right. uh, it, it would so you, so you kind of had you had to be a a fanatic or a nerd, mm. and so you're you're just am, amongst all these other film nerds, and um, mm. uh, so it was a great experience to have that. Uh, Hmm. Four and a half, four and a half years. I didn't quite make it in five years, in four years, of um, being with others who were just totally into what you're into, mm-hmm. and and the teachers and um, and the resources. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things about that that school was, uh, and there was some things that weren't so good about it, and um, uh, was being uh, in Los Angeles. And there are really strong ties to the the uh, tr- traditional film industry there, the studios. And so, 
big big time movie makers would come to screen their movies at the school mm. before before they hit the theaters. And so not only would you see these movies before they hit the theaters, but you would you would see the director or whomever. Wow. And some of some of my heroes. So um I remember um seeing and this was a big it was a class, but um, you know, everyone would come. That was the other thing nice thing too is that um mm-hmm. Tuition was expensive, but you could you could monitor uh, other classes that you didn't we weren't paying for. Mm. What, uh, what, what and, was what was one big film that you got to see before everybody else saw it? Well, it was um, John Cassavetes, one of my heroes, and he premiered or he sh- he showed um, a woman other than influence, starring uh-huh. his wife Jenna Rollins, which is uh, one of the arguably the one of the best. Um, female performances of all time in any, in, in the movies. Mm-hmm. And, and they were there, they, they were there, John Cassavetes and, and Jenna Rollins. Wow. That sounds like two, magic. Two. Yeah. And it was an incredible movie. Mm-hmm. Um, another one was, um, Alfred Hitchcock, the old master <laughs> showing his last movie. He, I don't know if he knew it was his last movie, uh, family plot. Right. Not, not one of his best movies, but, he was there in the in the flesh. Wow, Robert, that's <laughs> uh, amazing. A, yeah, fun, and funny guy, really. He, he he just he wanted to make the audience laugh. That's basically what was his um right seemed to be his his mo that night. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. So, Robert, I want to talk about your time in the 1980s at KGMB, um, a local television news station. Um, back in the day. Uh, was called KGMB is now Hawaii News Now. It's a combination of a couple stations that came together. You were a staff director and writer, and you wrote and directed all sorts of TV productions about culture and comedy and music. So let's pretend, Robert, you have an audience of public, private, and charter school kids who are all interested in storytelling and the creative arts. And they're sitting in front of you, uh, and you got the mic. Um, They want to know, Robert... What are the skills and habits and dispositions of people who succeed in these arts? Like, what are they? Um, well, I think, I think for me, uh, but I, I think it's, it's pretty common, uh, is um, I, I think the main skill is, is writing. Uh, you know, regardless of whether it's, it's a visual medium that doesn't end up on the page, um, if you're on the creative end, writing is going to be involved, um, and I think that was that was my strength. Um, you know that, uh, but it really depends on. Um, I guess I would tell them: um, try things out, figure out what you what you really like, what part of it you really like, what what part that really turns you on, that, that you know makes you passionate about it, uh, and pursue that. For me, it was the writing side, but for others, obviously, it was was um, camera work or editing. Um, I think the great thing about the, this field is that um, it taps into a, a real array of talents, mm-hmm. uh, and I think um, I think there's too much emphasis sometimes on being being good at everything, being a generalist. Mm. It's 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 actually good to to try everything out to find out what you're not good at <laughs> or, or what you 
you know, definitely believe others are better at that you would you would rather work with them mm. and find out and find out what you're good at and 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 what you like because um, that's just going to drive you. You know, it, it's a cliche, but it's true. You know, if, if if you love what you do, it's not it's not work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the other thing about that is you're gonna because it's not work. You're gonna you're gonna put in more time into it beyond the clock mm-hmm. uh and that's and that's what's going to help you succeed right we that's so awesome we're going to come back to that uh specialist versus generalist thing a little bit later in the hour but um i i wonder robert about like what you seem to be saying here subtext but maybe not subtext is that rarely in the creative arts are you doing anything specifically alone that almost everything that you would do within the creative arts means that you're going to be part of some sort of a, of a team endeavor where people are playing different roles, the writer, the producer, the, the organizer, et cetera. It like, is, is that generally true when you go into the creative arts is that you're, you're not doing it alone. You're doing it as part of a, a larger team effort. Well, I guess that depends. I, I would think, you know, maybe a, a writer, a writer for the page, would be pretty much alone until, mm-hmm. and then, and then maybe um, someone in the fine arts, a painter or a sculptor. Yeah. But uh, but then they're they're down the road. Um, you know, if you're a writer and you're you're serious about it and you're making a living, you're going to come across an editor. <laughs> right. Uh, and then uh, and then maybe with those art forms, maybe the the real collaboration then is with the audience because it's mm. really just it's you just you and the audience. And may, I guess the editor is maybe your first audience, you know. Right. Um, so, so those would be those are different in that regard. But, uh, but yeah, there still are others involved. Um, you know, uh, a, a painting maybe doesn't really exist until other people see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say I would say um, it's not a blanket thing. It's I think those are mm-hmm. the solo arts. Uh, which, in which case, the audience becomes the, the main collaborator, right? And right. And, and then, and then uh, the more the team arts, yeah, right, right. So, Robert, along the same lines, let's also pretend you have an audience of educators in media programs from around the state sitting in front of you, um, and you you've got the mic and you're talking to them. What is what is your message to them? What are the the skills, habits, and dispositions of a successful K-12 media educator? Wow. You know, um, I, I, I marvel at that because uh, I don't think I could do that. I, I'm, I'm so impressed by teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, what is Just the- from what I've observed, I, w- I would think that uh, it, it's not specific to teaching media. I think, um, I think the thing would be you have to be a kind of person that that can connect with mm. your student, mm-hmm. you know? Um, well, maybe more so in, 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 in the media arts. Um, the idea of you, you being the, the teacher, you know, um, you know, espousing the rules uh, uh, of whatever art form you're teaching from above and having the, the students, you know, you know, uh, pick up the scraps of your knowledge <laughs> right. and treasure them. Uh, I don't think it works, at least from what I can see. I think, um, uh, I think it's the ability to 
to see in a student, uh, you know, what their gift is, what they have to offer, and to and to maybe reflect that back to them, mm-hmm. and tell them, hey, you know, you're pretty good at this, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. and I can help. Maybe I can help you, you know, because I, I really see a lot of potential in you, and um, uh, you know, here's some if here's some tips to help you along the way. But I think that that connection of, um, I think wanting to be believed in, you know, is is really important. Mm. So it sort of begs the question of, I'm, I'm sure your audience members would, would ask like, well, so what are some first steps in terms of getting to know who my students are? Like, how do I start to make that connection with them? I bet you've observed that over your time working with educators. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I would say it, it, it comes out, uh, from the work. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I don't know if there's any real formula for it, but, um, set up, set up exercises, set up projects and, and get them, get them doing it, you know, regardless of what, what, you know, what knowledge or skills they have uh, to come into it with mm-hmm. and, and just observe and see what happens. Um, yeah and coach and guide and mentor um, and sponsor and listen and listen and listen right yeah I, I think I think if you're if you're looking at a story that uh, a video story that students have made um, I think the best thing a teacher could do in that situation is to be the, the best the most informed audience because really in the end that's what everyone is working towards so yeah. Uh, I tell teachers, you know, uh, a lot of media teachers in Hawaii, the ones that I work with through Ikino, um, don't come from the field. That's just a reality. Uh, but I don't think that that's um, a, a hindrance if they can be um, the best audience member that, that you can be. Hmm. And then just basically reflect back to the student. Right. I'm, I'm watching. I'm watching this and... I can't follow it. <laughs> Something happened here with the logic that, that, that uh, lost me or um, that's brilliant, you know, or that, that made me laugh, you know, whatever. Yeah. It, it's, it's that feedback to the work because when you're, when you're doing work, um, uh, you really have no idea what, what's coming out. You know, you're just, you're just trying your best and, 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 and doing what you think is, is going to work. But until you have an observer, uh, uh, an objective viewer, um, watching it and giving you feedback, you you really don't know. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, that's awesome, Robert. Um, So, hey, everybody, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Robert Pennybacker is the Vice President of Learning Initiatives at PBS Hawaii and the symphony director orchestrating Hikino, one of the most unique student-driven and authentic learning programs on planet Earth, in my humble opinion. So Robert, um, uh, at its official website, we can read um, Hikino, and I quote, Hikino, Hawaii's new wave of storytellers, teaches elementary, middle, and high school students how to create PBS quality news features that reach a statewide audience on PBS Hawaii and a worldwide audience on pbshawaii.org. So in the process, students acquire the life skills needed to succeed in college and career. So two parts to this question. 
What do the words PBS quality mean? And what does it look and sound and feel like to hold kids accountable to these quality standards? Uh, you know, it's funny <laughs> when, when you bring that up, the PBS standards. Um, I just had a funny uh, experience with we were, we've been uh, interviewing some of our funders uh, as part of our 10th, 10th anniversary celebration for Hikino. And uh, one of our longtime funders is this woman, Dot Mason, who is the widow of George Mason, the publisher of PBN. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, I asked her um, at the end, after the Hikino questions, well, what, you know, why do you support PBS? And she says, she said, well, it's very simple. You don't, you don't air dumb stuff. You don't air stupid stuff. <laughs> and, and I don't like stupid stuff. Um, it, it is... Um, it's hard to uh, well. There is one very specific thing on the journalism end of it, uh, and it's very specific. And there's something called the PBS Red Book that has these standards. And um, it, your your content, if it's based in real life, if it's nonfiction, if it's news or journalism, um, has to be fair. Has to be balanced. You you cannot take one side and um, and and just advocate for it. Uh, that. Mm-hmm. actually uh, cannot air. If, if something like that airs and someone calls you on it, you could, uh, bad things could happen to the station. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- so that, that's, that's probably the most specific standard. The other is, um, it, it, it's, it, it's a really, it's a gut thing, but it's called, it's called quality, you know, and uh, I think um, uh, the, the job previous to this job I had now was, was running the local programming department uh, at PBS Hawaii. So it was many other shows other than Hikino. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just, uh, I don't know how others do it, but I just have, um, uh, this, this gut, um, this little man that was in a movie, um, double indemnity. This little man talks to me and says, this, this just should not be on PBS. This is, this mm-hmm. is, this is not good. <laughs> so it really is. What is, what is good television and what is not? Uh, it, and it sounds really arbitrary, but uh, um, you, when you get in a position like this, you, you develop a, a sense for that. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's really a sense of it's respecting the audience. It's it's respecting the audience, the, the intelligence of the audience, mm-hmm. and um, and and not pandering because your uh, your your motive, your your reason for being on on the air, is solely solely to. Uh, to impact the audience, to entertain them, to inform them, to inspire them, mm-hmm. and and not to generate, not to sell anything. Mm. So, Robert, if I'm a student, um, I'm a I'm a student journalist who's participating in the program. Like, how how do I go about getting that little man to talk to me? <laughs> um, I think that's where the feedback comes in. You know, it's it's really hard to define it. So. Um, and we have a handbook in our handbook. We, we doesn't say don't do this and do that. Uh, and so that's really where the, 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 what makes Hikino, uh, unique is that, um, we have a team of, of industry professionals who are giving feedback to the students work, mm-hmm. uh, through every draft. And it's that feedback that's saying, you know, this, this really isn't, um, working. This isn't appropriate. This, um, this could be better. Uh, and I think that, um, 
you know, as I'd mentioned a, a while ago, um, feedback is really the best tool, really the only tool, I think, mm-hmm. because um, you, you can you can put out all the theories you want, but until uh, then something specific comes up that doesn't fit in any theory, you know, mm. right. <laughs> it has to it has to be that specific feedback, um, mm-hmm. and and letting them know the why, you know, why why isn't this working? Um, yeah, we, we, you know, Robert, you know that my, my day job at Apple, we have something that we call the feedback quadrant. So um, in, in the four different quadrants, there's positive generic, which isn't very useful. I could say, Robert is awesome, but that doesn't really, you know, explain much. Um, and then I could also negative generic, which would be, you know, Robert is, you know, is a pain in the neck. And that, that doesn't really mean anything either. So when you get into the positive specific and the negative specific, then you're starting to talk about exactly what you mean, the the why behind a, a, a piece of feedback. Like, you know, the, mm-hmm. log, the logic of this sequence that you're laying out in this film doesn't quite work. And then blah, 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 right? Yeah. You know, and I think um, you, you, you touched on something really important. Uh, the, the general feedback that you just mentioned, um, can get real personal, right? Yeah. On on the one side, it's very it's rewarding, and so you know you're you're stroking someone's ego. Yeah. And I don't know what good that does. And then on the other time, you people could take it as an I'm ba- I'm bad, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm a bad filmmaker, and and that that really doesn't come out because, and that's the beauty of it. It's all about the work, you know. And so, um, if if the students and the teachers can can um, get into that zone, uh, it can get very productive. Or you know, um, yeah. You don't take this personally because this it isn't you. It's 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 the work we're talking about. Yeah, right. um, and, and it's and the whole the, the mission of the whole team, whoever is whatever parts they're playing, is to make that work mm-hmm. the best possible. You know, right, right. right. Uh, and and then I think after it's done and the, and they succeed, then then you know then the compliments can come. Sure, say, you're, you're you're brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, follow-up question to that is, um, and you and I have talked about this before, going way, way back when we were first discussing, you know, airing Ted Dintersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed on PBS Hawaii. Um, we, we, for more than a hundred years, Robert, education has focused not so much on life skills, but job ready, like factory or professional skills. So it's really remarkable to me that your banner paragraph puts life skills um, front and center on the Hikino site. Like, what are the life skills that you're talking about, and how does Hikino help kids develop them? Um, yeah, they they keep coming up. You know, I think we we learned this from the teachers that the the, the first couple seasons. Um, yeah, when we when Hikino was created, I don't think we had these life skills in mind necessarily. Mm-hmm. And it was the, the teachers that saying, you know, my students are learning all these things by doing this, and it's, um, you know, it's it's teamwork, it's collaboration because it is a, is a, it is a team sport. Uh, it's creative problem solving, um, critical thinking, uh, be, taking responsibility meeting deadlines, you know, all those things that are really um, part and parcel to, to this type of activity of uh, a group uh, producing uh, mm-hmm. a video story for broadcast, you know, all, all those things just 
um, are really are really must haves, you know, for the for the thing to succeed. Um, and uh, but uh, when I was getting to that, I didn't I didn't realize that that was a big deal in education until the teachers turned on and said, "Hey," mm. um, and uh, and it, it wasn't so much about, "Hey, my students are are learning." Uh, how to compose a shot. No, it's, they're learning um, how to figure out what happens when um, they need to get the mayor on camera and, and his schedule is full, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, and that's the quote, real world, you know? Yeah. You're, you're putting them in an uncontrolled, there's nothing more, there's nothing less controlled than going out and doing a news story, you know, because you're, you're throwing them out into a world that they have, really no control over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, and, and when you, when you start, when, when the kids are really executing those skills at a high level, then you can start to imagine that they gain confidence, right? Because in, in, in your, when you're really growing in your confidence and your skills, and then you can start to imagine that those skills are being applied everywhere else besides the Hikino program that they're in. Um, mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> And you've mm-hmm. you've had those discussions with your educators about this, uh, yeah, and and with some of the the graduates, some of the te- the students, mm-hmm. right? So so Robert, roughly how many Hikino episodes have been made since the program began? Here you are in your tenth year. Uh, we actually counted, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, uh, and now we have to add a few more because there's been a, there's been about three more, mm-hmm. so um, one thousand one hundred and forty. Wow. Something. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a number. Um, and so, <laughs> so now, Robert, that we know that number, like what makes for a great, great episode? In other words, what is the DNA of a great Hikino episode? And I'm not, I'm not wanting you to describe an episode. I'm, I'm actually wanting you to sort of parse out what the DNA of an episode, a great episode is. Uh, yeah, it, it's funny because it it is sort of um, um, it's like alchemy. You, you, we don't really we don't really know. We have a hunch that maybe a good one is coming uh, is you know coming down the pike. Uh, I mean, and they're all good. They have to be to the air. They're all they're all good. Yeah. But the special ones are um, really when when we the team here, a very small team, uh, are pleasantly surprised by um, by the diversity. Because and the mix and match, you know, um, quality of the show. Where oh, we have <clears throat> there's a story from uh, McKinley, an urban school, and there's a story from Hana, a, a rural school, mm-hmm. uh, and there's there's kind of a funny story, and there's a tragic story, and there's um, you know, it's it's sort of like um, you know, just um, throwing all the, the this, these disparate ingredients uh, into into a pot. And and just being being surprised that hey, it actually tastes pretty good when, when you mm-hmm. put them all together, and and that's the um, that was kind of the neat thing about um, the format of the show that really kind of became a necessity. We, early on, we thought maybe we could do theme shows and and the schools could work together and and all you know do like stories for one episode and, and it would all make sense. We found out pretty quickly that 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 just wasn't practical. Mm-hmm. That the 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 you know the schools were so different and on different schedules, and 
didn't have time to talk to one another really. Right. So we said, okay, um, uh, everyone just pitch us your, your stories regardless of what, what the topic is. Um, and so then, um, to, um, to design a episode, uh, it really came down to, okay, who's going to be ready? (laughs) Um, and, and so just, but just by that, that happenstance, and the fact that uh, we're on in so many different types of schools on, on all the islands, um, you get that really great, that rich diversity. And, and so there are times when uh, the, the differences of the six or seven or eight stories that are in the episode really click to make something mm. special. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And then yeah. I think I think the follow-up question to that is, which digs a little bit more into the DNA of a particular segment, not the whole Hikino episode, but a segment that's produced by a school. And um, so I, I read an article in Honolulu Magazine titled Five Hikino Stories That Changed the Game for Hawaii Student News Network. Um, and so we don't have unlimited time, Robert, unfortunately, to talk about all five. But what episode or what two episodes stick out in your mind as remarkable enough to be to fit into that category of change the game? Oh, the stories as opposed to full half hour episodes. Correct. Uh, Well, there, yeah, there were those five. And the interesting thing was um, uh, the writer of the article, um, Christy Young asked myself and uh, our managing editor, Sue Yim, to come up with those, and we came up with the same ones. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think the first one that popped, in, the first one that chronologically was a story by um, an eighth grader at the time at YNI Intermediate, Crystal Sabeto. Mm-hmm. And this was about her, her, her dealing with her mother who has terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that sounds like... Um, Maybe it was um, a special story because it was about dealing with, um, you know, being a a young person with a parent who's going to die. But um, and that was that was kind of a game changer. But really was the the breakthrough was that um, it it really was a study about her, Crystal, the the daughter Mm -hmm. and how she changed. And it was just so honest and so revealing uh, to, to, to be able to do a story about how someone changes internally, uh, was just, um, a breakthrough for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and basically the, you know, the change was she had to grow up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and the fact that this really, uh, very fragile, complicated story was pulled off with such finesse Mm-hmm. by the seventh and eighth graders um uh just blew us away mm-hmm. and and so it 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 showed us that um hey he can know stories could be can be very personal and at the same time very very cogent mm-hmm. um and, and uh and so it was more of a breakthrough of um i think um the quality of of storytelling mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was another story cited in that article that both you and Sue came to the same conclusion about, about um, a transgender issue at a mm-hmm. school, which I found remarkable because that was way before that issue really came up on the national radar screen and has been part of the national conversation. What was that mm-hmm. about? Uh, yeah, that was about a, a 
a young woman uh, uh, had been born uh, a male and is identifying as female uh, in middle school, in the eighth grade. Um, uh, the teacher, uh, Luane Higuchi, told us, came to us with the story. Um, that's the process. You, you pitch the idea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, really, that really tested us. This was pretty early on in, in Hikino. And um, uh, we've, never re- we've never rejected a story based on subject matter. Or, or thinking, well, that subject matter is too deep. We, you know, seventh and eighth graders can't handle it. So we, we gave it the green light, and um, you know, it was just again, um, perhaps breakthrough on the subject matter, but really more so on on how on the treatment of it. And they really, they really took it to uh, the PBS standard that we talked about before, where um, uh, they told this very heated, you know, uh, uh, very heated. Um, topic of transgender students uh just extremely fairly and objectively and with uh with empathy for for the 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 character the the main character Mm -hmm. um and they they really resisted what i think uh most um adult news journalists uh would 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 really have a hard time resisting and that is uh, and that is um they didn't exploit the story. They right. exploited it for for its sensationalism or the curiosity, you know, factor or or the emotion, uh, and uh, and that's proven time and time again. That, that really, I think, um, I sound biased, but that actually makes um, a lot of Hikino stories better than what their adult counterparts um, mm. how they would handle it. And it's actually played out in that in that case um uh Hawaii news now saw the story and picked up and said hey we got to do a story on this on this student mm-hmm. and they did and it was nowhere near as good you know, <laughs> uh, very, very and very objectively i have to say you know yeah uh, yeah and that that circles us back to when i asked you about you know what that gold standard is and the first thing um, that you said really the top quality is is that fairness that you bring as a journalist yeah. to a story yeah. right yeah yeah it's 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 really um you know maybe the viewers aren't quite aware of it but they're they're aware on some level when you're watching public television um you're making an agreement with the viewer and, and you can't breach that agreement which yeah. is i'm not going to pull the wool out of your eyes i'm not i'm not conning you I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to um, convince you of, of my beliefs or point of view. I'm I'm just telling you a story, and and you take from it yep. what what you want. Yeah, yeah, that's very inspiring, Robert. You know, it, it hope for the world because as these young journalists possibly go into the field, they're going to bring that high standard to the work that they're doing, um, and we'll we'll get better journalism. I hope so. That's awesome. So, hey, everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Robert Pennypacker. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. 
The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Robert Pennybacker, the Vice President for Learning Initiatives at PBS Hawaii. So Robert, I want to return to something um, that we were talking about a little bit earlier, which had to do with, you know, the educators who um, advise these programs and help coach and mentor and guide these Hikino programs at the various schools. And I want to talk about one of your Hikino educators, Kevin Matsunaga. Um, mm-hmm. I, I pulled a quote from Hawaii, a Hawaii News Now article about how our schools dominated a national student news competition in San Diego. And in the article, Kevin stated, and I quote, Hawaii schools have proven once again that they can compete with anyone across the nation in digital media. The students' performance here is proof positive that our Hawaii digital media, media teachers and students are doing great work. So my objective in this podcast, Robert, is to highlight the work of um, epic educators and education leaders and even you know folks like you who are working with educators. But in this case, I'm going to ask you to do the highlighting. So what what makes Kevin special in the context of media education? Mm. Yeah, you know, he, he is a really um, special, special case. Uh, uh, something, someone to really look up to. You know, when he, that quote um, is interesting because it's, it's very true. Uh, and in fact, um, the, the Hawaii schools uh, and pretty much all of them are Hikino schools. Um, Percentage-wise, had had dominated uh, that that um, competition, that national competition, to the point where I think I think uh, the mainland schools were really angered by by Hawaii schools, or weren't you know weren't very happy about Hawaii being there, uh, honestly, because it's a very competitive um, place uh, event. But with Kevin, um, interestingly, I think the reason his students do so well is is what I talked about, is that connection. And, you know, I don't know what his background is in media. He, he certainly learned a lot uh, at this point. But I think his I think his 
true talent is with teaching and, and motivating students. Mm-hmm. And there's so many things that 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 his group of students uh, do on these uh, on these uh, trips. Uh, when you when they were trips, this year was virtual. Um, they um, uh, he has students pair off as mentors and mentees. He has um, has these activities where um, uh, the students write uh, secret messages to one another, uh, uh, telling that student uh, what's how does it work? Uh, each student get each student gets a uh, a um, assignment to observe another student. Mm-hmm. But that other student doesn't know who's observing them. They're wow. just all going about their way. And in the end, the, the, the observer writes notes to the, to the student they're observing saying what, what impressed them about how that student uh, carried themselves mm-hmm. or, or what, what they've learned about it. So it, that has nothing to do with media. You know? It's mm-hmm. just um, team building and personal skills and, and, and uh, really building, um, building personal relationships. I think really that's his focus and his strength. Uh, and, and the the fact that they do well in the competition is a byproduct of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And they all and they all say it it isn't about it isn't about winning. Uh, and you hear that a lot, you know. <laughs> well, you know, when when someone says that in sports, that's that's BS, right? You know, you, you know, it is about winning. But but in this case, um, it really isn't. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the winning is kind of a nice surprise at the end. It really was. What what was the experience the, the the human to human experience that you've had, what did you learn from it? What did you learn about yourself and, and your peers? Um, and the other, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of students that are here at that competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's to me, what I've observed that that's really the core of, of um, what Kevin does as a teacher. Mm, wow. That's, that's really cool, Robert. I mean, if, if I were a teacher, if I were a media teacher, Whatever kind of teacher, uh, you know, I happen to be, I could take that idea and implement it. That that idea of having students observe each other, you know, secretly and then provide feedback. That's just, I love stuff like that. And, and it keeps pointing to the idea, Robert, that the source of innovation in, our, in, in education is really the teachers. That's where it mm-hmm. comes from because they do these kinds of things. So, so kind of um, along the same lines, Robert, um, there's this PBS Hawaii documentary titled uh, Aloha Atlanta Hikino at the Student Television News Competition. And at the 18-minute mark, Kevin says um, several very remarkable things. This is a 27-minute film, um, and including his observations about how the com- the competition forces kids to collaborate and cooperate with each other and develop relationships with each other. Something he says, um, and this is back in 2016, um, he says is dying because of mobile devices and and other forces. Um, so I just wonder what your thoughts are about that. It really struck me when I heard him say that. Yeah, I think um, I think that's true. You know, I think I think he uh, he maximizes the the benefit of that activity in that um, you know uh, it's it's sort of sink or swim. You know, you 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 this group of students has to bond with one another, or they're going to sink because it's it's really a uh, incredible situation that this this competition is set up where. Students from across the country go to a strange city. It gets picked every year, 
and and are thrown to the wolves to you know they've got to go out and um, the parents the adults cannot intervene mm-hmm. they have to go out on their own and even as young as middle schoolers and in a strange city uh, I guess the parents are kind of in the perimeter to make sure nothing bad happens but they have to go out and find a story to ask strangers if they can do a story on them do the story run back to their hotel room write and edit it in the span of an, a couple a few hours now i i couldn't do that as a professional I, I i would just i would say forget that so um so they really um it's a, it's a sink or swim it's throwing them at the deep end of the pool you got to hold on to one another or, or you're going to sink mm-hmm. and i think i think he he uh recognizes that that is really the true benefit of this of that um, event hmm. and and focuses on that more than on um hmm. on on um the technical skills or on winning really you know right right so he's maximizing the opportunities embedded in this for building teams and for building relationships yes yes hmm. and and it's it's sort of we call it he can own steroids because that that's that is the Ikeno process, but the Ikeno process um, has has adults helping along the way, and it's yeah. much more drawn out. And you don't you don't run out and find a story. You, you know you develop it, and you know so it's it's but it's just condensing really the, the whole um, yeah. Ikeno experience in, into a few hours. Right, right. So, so Robert, in the final seconds of this film, uh, Aloha Atlanta, Kevin notes that all skills, habits, and dispositions that he observed in Atlanta at that point, all the research, the discovery, the writing, the interpersonal and technological skills should be, quote, on the test, by which I take him to mean, like, no standardized metric could ever capture what was actually happening. Um, and I think mm-hmm. he, I think he's making a larger comment about education and, and the ways that we can capture learning along a journey instead of at these discrete moments where you take a test or write a paper. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts about that? Uh, I absolutely agree. And, uh, he, he, but he just articulated it so well. Um, that's, that's the frustration that, uh, that we live with, with Hikino. Uh, we're, um, a grant funded operation. Mm-hmm. And most of the grants come from education funders, and they want metrics and they want they want data. And uh, people who who evaluate and and record successes from students don't seem to have come up with a way to to do that that satisfies yeah. the powers that be. And that's the real frustration because we it's kind of like. We we see it we we see it happening we see it in front of our eyes, but how do you put that down on paper? You know, yeah. Uh, and so I think um, uh, I think um, it behooves the system, whatever the system is, to figure out how to do that because yeah. they're they're missing the opportunities of um, a lot of bright kids falling through the cracks because they didn't get the right grades or the right test scores, but they're brilliant <laughs> yeah uh at other things yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and a lot of it is the, the proof for you know the proof is in the story watch the story kids did this you know yeah that it, it, this is brilliant isn't this enough but apparently apparently it isn't yeah. um so it's you know but 
it's what you know what gets you um, out of bed every morning you know to, to fight the fight yeah it sure gets me out of bed every morning uh, yeah I'm, I'm definitely into fighting that fight um, so, so Robert, we're coming down to the end here. Um, this has been awesome. I've got several more things I want to ask you about. Um, briefly, um, as we come to the end of our time, I want to talk, unfortunately, about the COVID-19 pandemic. So describe how Hikino, uh, really in its 10th year, right, uh, writ large responded to the pandemic. Like what pivots had to happen? How did, how did the process of storytelling change for Hikino teams across the islands because of COVID? Yeah, it was a complete turnaround. I, I would, you know, I would say it wasn't a pivot. It was uh, it was a three sixty. Hmm. Um, and again, it's it's really um, it's great when circumstances f- force things to uh, that end up actually be you know evolving the the program in ways we wouldn't have predicted. So um, <clears throat> the timing was such that uh, when the uh, it was announced that COVID-19 was a worldwide pandemic and the lockdowns happened. It was uh, right on the heels of um, our next round of new shows. And, um, and so there were, and there were no stories in the can. We had nothing. And um, at that time, the, the, the lockdown was, was quite severe and students were in their homes. Um, and it didn't take long for us to, to figure out, well, they're in their homes. Uh, that's that's where the stories are happening now. What's going on with families? Mm. Uh, they they have they have phones. We've resisted using phones as 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 the core um, cameras for Hikino, but they have phones, and we can they can make the pictures look pretty good. Um, so they uh, and the, the teachers um, really have to really have to credit them. They did not. Um, um, you know, throwing the towel, they said, yeah, we, you know, they're in school now, even though at that time last spring school, everything was just, uh, like extra credit, right? Nothing, nothing was being graded, mm. but they said, you know, uh, we, we want our students to, to be active. We don't want them to, to fall through the cracks. So yes, let's, let's have them do Hikino projects. Mm-hmm. And it, it created a, a new genre of Hikino story <laughs> called the, the student, the student reflection, uh, which kind of really broke our, our our format rules, not not our journalistic rules, but our format rules. Where the format was now the student talking to the camera about what they're experiencing uh, in school and in the home, and uh, and I think they became the the eyes to mm. uh, for for the rest of the state for how the pandemic was impacting wow. uh, students, families, and and the schools. From from their perspectives, but they still it still had to be a story. It was not it was not a rant, and yeah. so we came up with different guidelines to structure the story, and again to to meet those PBS standards. And uh, and I think um, that format is um, is going to stick with us uh, through this and beyond because we we tapped into something that we hadn't tapped into before, which is really. Um, mm. uh, the direct perspective of, of the students. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because you, we, we learned that you can, you can do that and still have them remain objective. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah. They have, they have to, they are in, in a sense reporting on themselves. They have to stand outside themselves and their situation 
and report on what is going on uh, in their lives and shape it into a story. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think uh, it really was no one wanted or predicted this pandemic, but it really forced um, uh, a change in a new direction that, that has really um, mm-hmm. uh, blossomed for us, I think. Yeah, yeah. A true silver lining innovation yeah. in the middle of a, of a crucible. Um, yeah. that, that's really marvelous, Robert. Yeah. yeah. Um, so look, there's a couple more things here. Um, as we come down to the end, I always like to ask, uh, guests, uh, some big philosophical question. We've already touched on it a little bit, but I'm going to return to it. So, um, last year I read a book by David Epstein titled range. Um, Epstein examined the world's most successful athletes, uh, artists, musicians, inventors, forecasters, and scientists. And he discovered that in most fields, especially those that are complex and unpredictable, generalists, not specialists, are primed to excel. So generalists often find their path late and they juggle many interests rather than focusing on one. And they're also more creative, more agile, able to make connections in uh, their more specialized peers can't see, at least according to Epstein's argument. So, Robert, what do you think about this idea? I'm I'm especially interested because you appeared to specialize early in creative media, but your resume literally reads like Renaissance man. Uh, I'm not quite sure what you mean, Uh, (laughs) Renaissance man. I I, I basically have been a storyteller and... uh, uh, I've gone into management because I had had to make a living. You know, yeah. that's sort of the nat- the natural progression uh, in uh, in Hawaii. If you want to make a living wage, you kind of climb the ladder up to management. Uh, uh, so, um, well, in terms of his argument, you know, uh, I think there's something to be said, but I, but I would I would just um, alter a little bit. I think there's a real benefit in being a generalist because. Uh, you know what goes into the making of a product. Mm-hmm. You may not be good at all of it, and that's that's where the difference is. So you seek out help from from peers and from collaborators who uh, who are better at the specific jobs that uh, you know that it takes to create the product. But I think the benefit of being a general, generalist is knowing that. She's she's a terrific camera person. Yeah, he's a terrific editor. No, knowing what is good, basically, knowing knowing what is good, um, having good taste, uh, and seeing being able to see that in other people. Um, so uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but it. Um, so I kind of half agree with him, mm-hmm. but uh, but I would but I would I would uh, diverge by saying that um, once once you. Um, become a generalist and you know your you know your subject really you know your field really well the the value is that you you know what's good but not but you should then realize that you're not necessarily the best person to do yeah to do the to do the job and that's when you need the the specifics so yeah i i maybe that's what a director is and they say a director really doesn't have any talent they they <laughs> they see the talent in the other people that and they put the right people together to, to, to make it work. That's, that's really true. You know, uh, you know, they kind of, I kind of joke, but at, at film school, um, I didn't know I wanted to be a director. Uh, I actually wanted to be an editor, but, um, I was terrible at coiling cable. I could not coil it so that, <laughs> so that it didn't, it didn't twist and bind. Yeah. 
and and they they, they all laughed. Said you, you better be a director. You can't <laughs> you can't do this stuff. Uh, so yeah, yeah that's uh, we, but 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 we need the coil cable. We need the coil. Yeah, uh, cabler string. Cable stringers, whatever you call it. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Robert. I, I had this marvelous experience last fall where I was finishing my second film, um, which is also about education. It's called The Innovation Playlist. And I did it in partnership with YNIC Writer Productions. And because of COVID, um, it ended up being John Allen uh, as my editor um, and myself. And what I came to understand, like I, my strength is in organizing the storytelling of the film. Uh, John's strength is is the editing and the the magic qualities of music and B-roll and the way the thing comes together to make the storytelling really work. And what I learned is that I, I could never be that editor uh, who works with Final Cut Pro and does all of those incredible things that he does with his mouse. Um, but I am really good at sort of seeing how the bigger picture was emerging. So I hear mm -hmm. you, I hear you about that. It also implies that, um, that you come to know the specialties of other people when you're working with other people. So if you're working entirely alone on something, you know, if you're a dentist and all you see is patients all day long, um, then you may not ever get that benefit, which is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting conversation. So um, finally, Robert, as we come to the end here, I want to end by talking about polar bears. Um, so my wife, uh, Cheryl Ansi, uh, who you have worked with over the years in media, yeah. um, told me that you and your wife took a special trip to see polar bears. Yeah. So when, when was this and why polar bears and what was the coolest thing about that trip? Um, let's see. It was about four years ago. Um, you know, we, uh, we're animal lovers. We have, we have many pets, uh, and we're like many people really, you know, the polar bear is kind of the, the they're kind of the poster child of what's happening to the world, uh, with, with, um, climate change. And it, it's a very real thing. And so, um, we went on a tour by this, this, um, organization that we, that we um, contribute to World Wildlife Foundation, uh, and they work with uh, a tour company called uh, NatHab Natural Habitats. And um, you know they, they, you know they sent us the mail, the, the junk mail, and, we, <laughs> and and they they caught us. You know, I mean, it was just one of those things where we said, yeah, you know, wow, we we really should do this. And we went, and it, um, I'd never been to Canada, and so you you fly into Winnipeg, uh, and then fly actually into um, into the Arctic Circle, the, the southern part of the Arctic Circle, so not the not the North Pole, uh, into um, into Saskatchewan, Canada, uh, and a small town called Churchill, and that's where the uh, the, the mothers and the cubs are traversing uh, up to uh, the ice, um, and it happens every year, you know, in the fall, and. Um, uh, the coolest thing was really what what everyone goes there for. We we were there with um, a small group in these land these huge Land Rovers that were built spe specifically to be able to just drive over the tundra, no roads. And uh, there was a male hanging out, and we parked and we said, "Look, let's see what happens." And a very large male polar bear was, was curious and came up and hung out with us and stood up on his hindquarters and 
stuck his nose into the bus window and wow you know it's just one of those mo- and everyone was very quiet because you know we could scare scare him away uh and it was just um you know we took pictures and it was just one of those moments that we'll never forget wow that just sounds like magic yeah it was yeah it was yeah that's very cool very cool um, so, Robert Pennybacker, thank you for being on this show, and thank you, Times Millions, for all the opportunities that you have given young people in the state of Hawaii to to find their voices and their storytelling skills. And we wish you and your family um, good health in the weeks and months ahead as we hopefully navigate towards the end of this pandemic. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing what you do, and thanks for thanks for having me on. It's yeah. Fun. Okay, Robert. We'll see. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, awesome and epic listeners, for supporting this podcast and giving it a 100% five-star rating. We appreciate you, and thank you for all your wonderful written reviews. This podcast is inspired by the book, What School Could Be. To join the What School Could Be community, and wow, 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 what an incredible community it is. Go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or download the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. If you love these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders, please give us your own rating and write us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his Facebook and website URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dentersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at mltsinhawaii. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Please, listeners, stay safe, wear a mask, stay physically distant from one another, and for the love of the gods, get vaccinated. Most of all, consider bringing kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho. Mm-hmm.